0: This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Shapiro, professional adventure athlete whose many pursuits include climbing, hang gliding, paragliding, and wingsuit base jumping.
1: The real point of all of those activities for me was to get me into a place where I was able to experience life in a very present way.
0: Jeff and his family lived in Montana for many years and recently relocated to the Oregon coast. We connected via Zoom to discuss risk, uncertainty, the seasons of life, and many other matters of consequence. This stuff fascinates me, as I hope it does you. So we're bringing you this conversation in two parts. Here's part one. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do?
1: I um, <laughs> spent most of my childhood growing up north of Seattle in the town. Well, I started off in Bothell and then we moved to Woodinville when I was maybe 12. And I spent summers visiting my mom's mom who lived alone in Hawaii. So my brother and I had this pretty unique opportunity to spend the large majority of the year going to school in Washington and then at least a couple of months, sometimes as many as three in Hawaii each year from the time we were born until we were 18. I think he ended up staying for an additional eight years after that. But my dad was a, well, it's interesting. He has a pretty interesting background. He has a law degree and a accounting degree, and he never wanted to practice law. And I don't even think he actually took the bar, but he he ended up through a series of, as we do, transitions through his work-related life, he ended up working for a business and then eventually taking that business over that rented, leased and sold laundry equipment. But it's funny, those, that business was a bit of a means to an end for him. He was always kind of a fun hog and his passions were cycling. I think he did some assistant coaching for the 7-Eleven team when we were just little little kids. And my mom was a nurse practitioner in women's health and owned her own practice just, just kind of down the road from us and outside of Bothell. You know, my, my folks were both very outdoorsy and took us camping and hiking. And I have lots of memories of certainly cycling trips and um, and finding adventure and our, our sort of love for the outdoors definitely came from them. But neither of them were really into any of the things that I ended up finding as passions later in life.
0: Yeah, let's talk about some of those passions. How would you describe yourself as an athlete? I mean, you do so many different things. There are some through lines across those activities, but yeah, describe your your athletic career.
1: I mean, we we use the term athlete sometimes or I do, but I I never really looked at it that way. It was more just like a curiosity. Like anybody else, I've just been curious about certain things and I find that you know, maybe it's a little easier to reflect upon this at this stage in life, but I feel like life is this like series of opportunities and if you have the opportunities if you're lucky enough to get those opportunities to not take advantage of them would be a bit of a travesty you know Mm so when i was curious about something i would want to learn as much as i could about it and especially if there was some intriguing value you know like if there was as a younger guy i was attracted to things that involved you know a, a uniqueness of environment risk probably i mean if i was honest probably the risk was attractive as a young guy yeah but those things that fascinated me ended up i don't know if it's a personality thing or what but it ended up just driving a bit of, obs- of obsession you know i think that there's this line between passion and obsession that can be pretty blurry sometimes and i was pretty obsessed about certain things and so yeah when i was maybe 14 somewhere between 10 and 14 i got introduced to rock climbing and um just the nature of that environment and pushing myself through fears and doubts was a pretty, was pretty attractive, especially for a young boy who was, um, you know, discovering and battling my own ego and those kinds of things. And then when I was 17, I was climbing uh, enough to um, have met some folks that were pretty adventurous. And one of those guys was a hang glider pilot. And through uh, a lot of luck, I somehow found myself close enough with him to uh, have him offer to to teach me how to fly a hang ladder. And now I see the uniqueness of that. That was, it's really rare for someone to take on a 17 year old kid in such a, a highly consequential sport. And, and especially in those years, it wasn't developed like it is today that that was like, stepping into another planet for me. When I learned how to fly a hang glider, I mean, I I didn't, it's not like that was something that my friends in high school did, you know, (laughs) like I didn't even know how to get involved in hang gliding. And yet the idea of running off of a mountain, you know, the mountains that attracted me towards climbing and just this environment that I was really curious and fascinated by. And, just saw the hugeness of the mountains. You know, this this now I can reflect and say that the mountains make me feel small, which is a good thing. To be able to, to go into that environment, take a bunch of tubes and, and fabric off the roof of your truck and um, in 10 minutes have a pair of wings that you can run off that mountain and, and into the sky with and then, um, you know, fly around. Not to be cliche about it, but it was a kind of magic for me. So when I learned how to do that, that completely shaped and changed my life. Hang gliding and climbing were very dominant features for a long time and, you know, ended up uh, after having a professional career, ended up taking the place of that career and becoming a way that I, you know, I make my living, which is um, also very, very lucky.
0: Sure. And that led to a bunch of different pursuits in flight i mean how would you classify these various these various forms of flight that you engage in at this yeah, point
1: i classify it as just human flight i don't know i i um it's funny I, so i was completely and utterly consumed by climbing and flying hang gliders and then through a mutual sponsor i became pretty good friends with a climber named dean potter mm-hmm. and dean at that time was kind of on the cutting edge or the he's pretty much the sharp side of the spear for wingsuit base jumping. He was flying the biggest suits and he was doing the biggest jumps and helping to develop that sport towards the direction that it's it's continuing to develop today. And we were at a trade show in Salt Lake City talking just kind of in the corner. Both of us sort of loathed that environment. So we were sort of hiding in the corner, sitting on the floor with his dog, whispered, just rapping about human flight and how we were both incredibly fascinated with it. And he was actually really interested in learning how to fly hang gliders as just another, another tool to like get in the sky, you know, during that conversation, he pointed out that I would probably be pretty interested in, in wingsuit base jumping. And at the time I, I wasn't admittedly, I was not interested in skydiving. I didn't really care that much about falling. I saw the the benefits of being able to jump off something after climbing it, but you know, in a hang glider, you, the glide is like 17 to one. I mean, you, you can fly. I mean, I'd flown over 200 miles multiple times on a hang glider over um, hours and hours in the air, just using the the wind and the thermal. So I felt like that was the kind of flying that I wanted to do and falling just wasn't really appealing. But then I saw of some footage of him. He had climbed a new route up in Canada and then, and then jumped it in a wingsuit. And, you know, the Cineflex footage was, I mean, you know, what Cineflex footage looks like. It's just, it's absolutely breathtaking, yeah. and just the light was like, holy cow! This dude is like, Dean. Dean's not falling; he's definitely flying. You know, and flying with his arms, and it really did jar me a little bit to like to to my core. And so I called him and was just like, okay, I get it. You know, how how can I make this happen? This is like, you know, it's, it's definitely grabbed a hold of me. And he you know, introduce me to some people and line me out. And, um, I started that path. It's a long path. It's committing. There's a lot of steps to take, you know, like, you know, we always say when it comes to risk, you doesn't have to take a long time, but you can't skip any steps, you know? And, um, so I, I just completely and utterly committed to that, which was interesting because at the time to commit to wingsuit base jumping, I had to stop flying a hang glider the way that I had been because, traveling around the world, you know, internationally five, six times a year for multiple comps and racing on the circuit pretty much was all consuming. So to focus on wingsuit base jumping and learning how to to get to that point, which demands, like I said, a lot of steps means that I, I couldn't do that. So you, you have to like sort of let go of the ego and say, okay, well, I'm no longer going to be a professional hang glider pilot. And instead I'm going to give all that up to be a beginning skydiver, which is essentially what you do, you know, but it didn't matter because the path was so fascinating and so consuming and profound in terms of working towards this, this, what at the time felt like kind of a dream. I mean, that was during that era where when you saw footage of someone flying a wingsuit down a a mountain. I think it was like around 2009 or 10. It didn't even look real. You
0: yeah. Know? Yeah, absolutely. That would just, that would very well describe my first experience viewing some of that footage. And I think it was a video with Dean Potter, just like, is it, how is this even possible that a human that's being it, is doing it. that?
1: That's it. Yeah. And, and so it ended up being a pretty easy decision. And, and certainly like these decisions that you make that you can sort of look in hindsight as to being the most meaningful decisions of your life. It was one that I, I wasn't sure how, but I knew would, would change my perspective and um, knew that it was worth exploring.
0: Sure. Jeff, back to something you said a moment ago about not skipping steps, like going through a rigorous process of, of apprenticeship. I mean, you're balancing your desire to learn and to be ready and to go through all the steps but you also have ambition, you've got excitement, you want to you, know, you want to achieve some level of proficiency so that you can do your first wingsuit jump or whatever the objective is. H- how do you kind of, as you're going through that, given that th- there's not a lot of people around doing this, how do you kind of know um, when you're in a certain step and when it's time to, to advance to the next step?
1: I mean, I would just, I would really be not, facing the truth if i was to say that i did it with complete intention cuz at the time when i was going through those steps i was certainly following advice from people who knew more than me sure. and i was also listening to my instincts which was uh, even at that time you know fairly developed just from the climbing and the flying and i'd seen carnage in in those other activities you know i'd seen people lose their lives flying hang gliders and and lose their lives climbing and mm-hmm. so you know i was aware the consequence definitely felt real to me at that point but interestingly enough i also just kind of got lucky because there were numerous times where i looked back at uh, my progression and i thought i was doing it smart for me and now i would probably argue with myself that uh, you know I, I went too fast in some places and and in other places probably did it just right but you know when when you it's a little bit new and at that time that the the, I wouldn't say the sport of wingsuit base jumping was new per se although it kind of was it was definitely progressing at a rate that was much faster than any other time in its in its history I think like right when I got into wingsuit jumping big suits were starting to to sort of be developed and so you know, as an example, when I started jumping off cliffs with a wingsuit, us what we call a rock drop, which now we shoot with lasers to determine the the uh, distance between the exit point and the first obstacle that you either have to clear or that you might impact if you were to, you know, have an, an issue or not, not get the suit flying. And that rock drop is just that, right? You, you hold a rock and you drop it and if you're at the cleanest part of the exit point and you drop that rock, you, you time it. And whatever the time is for that rock to make impact is the time that you have to get that suit flying and and just be driving forward. And in those days, a seven second rock drop was a, that was a cliff that a lot of people walked away from where they were just like, ah, this is gnarly, you know? And now seven seconds is considered huge. I mean, with the development of the equipment and the knowledge and the level of instruction you know, people are routinely jumping exits that are four second rock drops. And, you know, the fastest start that I could ever manage in the biggest suit I ever wore was 2.8, 2.0, you know, 2.8 seconds or something like just around three seconds. So if you have a, you know, obviously the speed that is building because gravity is driving the flight is exponential. You know, you're, you're falling further and faster the longer you you're, the the amount of time that passes after you jump. Sure. If you get your suit flying in 2.8 to 3 seconds and the rock drop is 4 seconds, you know, you better do it right.
0: We'll be back to our conversation with Jeff Shapiro after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Ryan Tutel and Coulter Nuanas from ESPN Missoula, and you're listening to A, A New, New Angle. Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. We're talking about risk and consequence with Jeff Shapiro. At those speeds and whatnot, like how close are you to the ground with that 1.2 seconds margin for error?
1: There's, there's, um, a lot of variables involved sure. if you jump, you know, because when you get out of an airplane, you have lots of airspeed, you know, instantly, right. You just open the suit after you clear the tail of the airplane and okay. you've got 60 miles an hour in your face to be able to, to start the flight with uh, good pressurization and some decent controllability of the aircraft, which happens to be this suit that you're wearing. Right. But when you jump off of a cliff, you're going from standing still to hopefully fast enough to control the suit. And that amount of time is, is I mean, you'd be surprised at how long four seconds feels, you know, it's a lifetime. And if you jump off in an angle of attack that isn't correct, then the amount of time it takes for you to get that suit started and flying away from the object in control can be exponentially longer. Sure. Um, than if you did it correctly, so you know, if you jumped off of a, of an exit that was pretty close, you had to do it just perfect. And, um, if you didn't, then, then the consequences were dire. So yeah, there, that during that era, there was a, uh, you know, obviously a lot of loss of life and, and there's still, it, I mean, there's still, still is, it's been an expensive year this year. So it's just an unforgiving activity. But with that said, it's also like, I don't know, you know, one of the most amazing things I've ever done certainly and feel like a human can do uh, it is pretty incredible to jump off, especially in those adventurous moments where you have the luck to find a cliff that no one else has flown. Sure. You know, to uh, do the work, hike back into the mountains, climb, or or find your way to uh, an exit that is applicable to your skill set and your level of experience, and then to actually put the wingsuit on, jump it, have a flight. You know, fly 150 miles an hour where the glider is your arms. You know, and then um, safely open your parachute and land on that that experience is it well whatever for me it was profound
0: yeah let's maybe press on that a little bit i mean very few if any one listening to this right now will have that experience but but all of us can sort of pursue experiences that access a certain quality of mind and I, I would imagine it requires a, a specific quality of mind to pull off a wingsuit-based jump or, or another activity with, with kind of that dire consequence. Talk talk about that. How, how, what state of mind are you seeking in those activities? What state of mind do you have to achieve in order to feel ready to to, to jump off a cliff and and, and and take that leap, so to speak? Yeah, talk about that, that quality of mind.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, it's funny. Since those things have been, you know, pretty predominantly in my life. I've sort of been able to step back and self-reflect, self-reflect and realize that that it's kind of metaphorical in a lot of ways, right? Like jumping off the cliff can be can describe any any number of things. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be quitting the job that you hate and and going on a different path or realizing that your relationship is unhealthy and and going a different direction or Uh, self-reflecting in a way that makes you really question the path that you're on and then changing that path in a positive way. So, you know, jumping off a cliff is just something that was more literal for me at that time. But that that mindset is the same and I think relatable for most people because although the consequences might not be as life-threatening, there's still consequence in every aspect of life. And the real prize or the benefit for me, and again, this is nothing that I, it's not like it's a conclusion I came to as a you know, as a new jumper or, or even younger than that, as a dumb kid, I, it was it's something now that I can sort of look back on and reflect. So admittedly, you know, it was, it was a learned thing, but the, the, the real point of all of those activities for me was to get me into a place where I was able to experience life in a very present way. And presence is sort of a little bit of a, of a keyword these days, but it's, it's so true because, presence is the only thing we have, right? Right, Like we can't, we can't change what happened and we don't really know what's going to happen. So all we can do is live this moment in the very best way that we can. That doesn't mean that I'm saying we shouldn't pay attention to the future or, or plan for the future or learn from the past. It just means that the only thing we can control is our own minds and our own behavior. And the only thing we have is, is how we behave and what we think about right now. And when I jump off a cliff, it puts me in a level of presence that is pretty cheap. You know, it's easy to get to this place where I'm so present (laughs) that even the parts of my brain that creates memories and understands time doesn't work the same that it does in normal life. So that, that level of presence makes life feel pretty rich. And it also, for me pointed out and maybe risk had something to do with this, but it always pointed out to me what was important and what wasn't important. So You know, I would get done with a wingsuit base jump and realize in a a very real way how even if I don't really care so much what, you know, my daughter's friends are doing or saying when she's telling me a story, I listen. And the reason is, is because it's important to her and she's important to me, you know, and those conversations that I have with her, I'm able to to sort of recalculate what present means and be there wholly. You know, so then my trips, when I was gone, I was gone. Right. But when I was home, I was home, you know, Mm -hmm. and learning how to be present is definitely a skill. It's a practiced thing. Right. So I, I also think that you can achieve that same sort of state of mind or that understanding of presence and understanding of what's important and what's trivial with a quiet mind. You know, you can, you can get to that same place with meditation or Stretching or yoga or running, trail running. You know, I've I've experienced that art, music. Right. There's all kinds of ways to get to that that state of deep self reflection and understanding that these moments all matter. They they make you who you are and how you are and and who you are and how you treat other people. That's what's important. That's that's what we get. That's like that's the prize in life, right? And so all of those things came from that. And I think, I think you can do it with a quiet mind. It's just much more difficult. That's what I mean by cheap, you know, jumping off a cliff, you, you can't not be in that state, right? Um, you're sort of forcing your way to that, to that point because it's, it's easy to get there when you, when you're, you know, head first, hundred plus miles an hour in the mountains, but, but you can do it. You can be mindful without doing all that other stuff
0: and i would assume jeff that the the amount of mindful i don't know if you can quantify mindful mindfulness that that maybe is a misnomer but like the state of clarity you have to have well before you take the jump has to be pretty profound as well i mean certainly yeah the the rush of the wind in your face and 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 the instantaneous change in your state and your relationship to the earth in a way you can force that, but before that you have to be pretty clear and quiet as well. I would imagine.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting process to go through. I, I get scared just like everybody, you know, and I remember, I was really fascinated with, especially when I was living in Missoula, I was really fascinated with this, the exploration part of it. I've always been interested in, you know, trying to do first sense in terms of, you know, within my climbing and the idea of going into the mountains and finding, these sort of hidden gems where I could fly my wingsuit and have this incredible experience in an arena where no one was watching and and no one really cared, um, was pretty special, but, but there was that, that comes with all of what you would expect, right? Like tons of fears and doubts. I remember, you know, going to sleep and a lot of it comes from the experience, right? Like having friends die while we were jumping together or having, you know, a few close calls. I remember night, the night before most of my jumps when I knew I was going to be jumping by myself. Sometimes like making this very, I mean, it, now it sounds sort of dramatic. Then it was just kind of like this evolution that you go through mentally. But I remember thinking like, okay, well, this could be my last night at home. You know, like this could be my na- my last night on this planet and not being able to sleep very well and going through all of those, like dealing with your own demons. And then, you know, finally getting to sleep super late at night, waking up, you know, crack of dawn, like certainly long before it got light. and. Uh, making that conscious decision to get out of bed grab the gear you know pour a cup of coffee drive to the mountains and just take it one step at a time i was never committed to jumping always just going for a hike and i would make that decision when i got there and um, getting out of the car in the morning it's funny i describe it and it's hard to really put into words what it feels like for me what it felt like to get out of your truck you know you're like listening to music and get the heat of the you know, the the heat on in the truck and you, you shut it off in some dark parking lot in the mountains to put your, you know, your pack on with all your gear and to start walking, you know, deep into the mountains by yourself in the dark. There was a lot of fear in just that, you know, and then walking up into a place where you leave the trail and you're now you're kind of bushwhacking up some big steep Goalie or, or whatever, kicking steps up a couloir and then having to solo up slabs or boulder up something. And, you know, to end up at this perch that no one even knows about way up in the mountains, you know, 3000 feet over some, you know, postage stamp that you're going to land at totally by yourself. And then the sun cracks the horizon and you get to like, go from this progressive sort of crescendo of dealing with all of the questions, right? Like the Are the conditions good? Do I feel mentally and physically up for this? Is this going to actually work? Am I going to survive this? And, and then, you know, when when everything feels right and you put your wingsuit on and you're standing up there by the time I got to the point where I was actually geared up and have checked my gear three or four times and I'd let go of most of the emotion and was now in like logic mode, you know, (laughs) and like analyzing all of those things that I knew needed to be analyzed. The, the, as Will Gadd says, the positive power of negative thinking, like that part was over. I had already done all that. And so now all I'm doing is paying attention to the beauty of the place and doing exactly what I need to do to make sure that I'm successful. And, um, obviously I wouldn't have gotten to that place, that decision, unless I believed wholly that I was a, you know, that I was going to be capable of, of doing this thing. And then you have this incredible adventure and, um, I'd land and realize how small I was and how vulnerable we all are and how important it is to be a good person and to to be kind and how trivial it is to have differences and to make a big deal out of traffic and just, you know, these things that we, we do every day and don't even think about. And then, you know, I'd walk out of the Canyon and pick berries in the sunshine with my parachute all wadded up on my back and walk past hikers coming in with their dog first thing in the morning. And they kind of give me a strange look like, wow, you're in here early. How's your morning? And I'd be like, ah, oh, it's pretty good. <laughs> and, and just that whole transition, man, it was a special time in life for sure. It definitely, um, definitely affected you know who I've become and I'm grateful for it.
0: Stay tuned for the second half of this conversation with Jeff Shapiro next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Healy Larson is our producer. VTO Jeff Amet and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot and see you next time.